So today we're going to be talking about the Passover. I had wished again to put this in the context of Jesus declaring himself king by coming into Jerusalem on on Palm Sunday, but we'll probably just have to do that next year. So uh, two weeks ago, not last week, but two weeks ago, we looked at a number of different ways that Jesus, uh, that John the Baptist declared Jesus to be the one who was going to come and judge Israel, that Yahweh was going to come and judge Israel. And then we had seen how uh, that was just in the context of John the Baptist time and again, prophesying and telling of Jesus as a particular person or a particular uh, role that he had. We're going to see that this morning. Um, Up until now, we have been looking at people who foreshadowed Jesus. And today we're going to shift for this week and at least next week and maybe a few weeks onto uh, symbols or objects that that foreshadow Christ. It's not just that there are certain individual characters like, you know, David or Adam or Abraham that we can see Jesus in beforehand. It's also the case that Jesus shows up time and again in the situations and in the things that uh, in the in the artifacts or the furniture, etc. So we're going to see that this morning. We're also going to look at the massive impact that the gospel has on a situation. And we're going to see that in Exodus 12, and we're going to tie it to what's happening to the church in uh, Jesus's resurrection. And we're going to look at how that is continuing to move forward in our own culture. We're going to look at how Christ is our lamb. That's just to give it away at the beginning. My point is that Christ is the Passover. And then finally, we're going to tie that with the communion meal, and we're going to do something a little bit different today. We're actually going to close with a reading after I um, stop yakking. So um, that's all by means of introduction. Let's pray, and then we're going to get into it. So Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you that you would open our hearts, that you would open our eyes to see in your word your Son spoken of and prophesied before he came onto the scene in bodily form. And God, we ask you that you would let him uh, re-enter our hearts day by day, but especially this morning, that we would see your word and that we would we would open our eyes to the things that are there and that your spirit would help us. Uh, your spirit would help us understand. Your spirit would help us uh, repent and your spirit would help us see you in greater glory. God, we we thank you so much for what Jesus has done in dying in our place and rising in our place, that he not only died for us, but in him we died as well, that he not only died for us, but as us, as our substitute. God, we ask you that you would make that clear to us this morning, that you would communicate that to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So symbols and types. So Christ is not just foreshadowed by people, but also by objects. Uh, If you need um, time and again, I've said that this is not my idea, this Christ in the Old Testament series. It's, while I might be doing it, it's it's certainly not, I didn't invent this concept. Hebrews 8 through 10, actually, there's there's three whole chapters, 8, 9, and 10, that focus on Jesus being... uh, 
the the temple furniture that was established in Solomon's day pointing us forward to Jesus, as well as the sacrifices that were established under Moses and all the furniture in the temple. All of that points to Christ. And Hebrews 8 through 10, those three chapters lay out uh, a, a an argument that these things were only only mere shadows or mere copies of what was to come. And so this isn't a new idea. This isn't my idea. But uh, in, in Exodus 12, we see a number of different symbols in the situation. It's a common biblical metaphor or biblical theme that Egypt speaks of bondage, and that is related to the bondage that we are in before we come to Christ. That is the mystery of iniquity, this idea that we somehow are trapped under sin because of, of our, uh, this, this doctrine of original sin, that because we have sinned in Adam, we are now helpless sinners who are in need of redemption. And so we're trapped and enslaved to, as Paul says, enslaved to uh, former passions and former lusts. That is, we are trapped into doing and committing and wanting to commit iniquity and sin. And so this this bondage that the Israelites find themselves in is is mirrored in the in the New Testament as sin. And so so last week or two weeks ago we left off with Jacob and his sons and then Joseph going uh going down into into Egypt and we kind of missed the famine and all of that but just to fill you up on the story if you don't remember Joseph goes down provides a way for his family to eat food in the midst of a famine, and God had set that up uh, beforehand, which Galatians explains that it was the sovereign act of God, that, uh, that for 430 years, the Israelites would, go, would grow up in Egypt, and the Egyptians would begin to oppress them. And so the Egyptians were putting uh, hard penalties and work on the Israelites, and they were trapped in the service of the Egyptians. They had to do whatever the Egyptians told them. And so they're being oppressed, and they're being, they're being trapped, and they cry out to the Lord, and God sends them Moses, their deliverer. And we'll, we'll look at Moses in probably three or four weeks, but right now it's just it's enough to know that the bondage of bondage of Egypt is the same as the bondage of sin that we are in before we come to Christ. Not only is the bondage of sin pointing to uh, something, but also Pharaoh points to the power of the evil one. That is, Pharaoh is a type of Satan or a type of the evil one or a type of the strong man. And so here in this chapter, we are already beginning to see some application and theme for us. In 1 Corinthians 10, 6, Paul actually argues not only this experience, but also them wandering in the desert and how the Israelites fell away. That was done, as he says, now these things happened as an example for us. That is, Paul's idea is that the narrative around the Israelites in this situation actually points forward to a reality that makes sense and has application for New Testament believers. And so in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul's arguing that, and he actually builds an argument for three whole chapters after 1 Corinthians 10 on that very sentence, that what Israel did in the wilderness was applicable to us as New Testament believers. And so immediately we start to see the the point of the gospel and the message of the gospel. And what I want to do in this series is open our eyes to the magnanimity and the size of what God is doing on the earth. 
in the beginning of this chapter, Exodus 12, 2, it says, God says to Moses and Aaron, Yahweh comes and he speaks. He says, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. And what is amazing about that is that God is changing time. He is setting up a manner in which they are going to count their calendar based on this event. That this event is defining not only their physical existence of them living outside of Egypt and in freedom, but he's also saying, you're going you're gonna to base everything in your culture around this event. The unfolding of God's redemptive plan even affected the time in which his people lived, and it does so with us today. Two weeks ago, we, the main point of that message was that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. We saw how when Jesus was coming in to the temple, he he uh, was clearing his threshing floor, and in the midst of that, he heals someone on the Lord's day, and or sorry, on, on the Sabbath. And with today, with Easter, we celebrate Jesus rising on the Lord's day. The day of worship in the new covenant moves from Sabbath to the Lord's day or Sunday, the first day of the week or the eighth day of the week, counting the first day and then a full week. This is mentioned, if you want any proof of it, 1 Corinthians 16, Acts 20, Revelation 1. But not only does it change us worshiping from Saturday to Sunday, over time, the effects of the gospel in transforming culture actually established a new calendar basing everything on Jesus's coming to this earth. The phrase uh, anno domini, uh, and I'm terrible at pronouncing Italian, but amo domini, domini, in the year of our Lord, after a certain number of centuries, the biblical historians, the Christian historians, actually began to count all of time based on the coming of Jesus Christ. And so in the same way, the new covenant implications and culture have totally dismantled the old system of counting, whether it was based on when they thought the world was coming about or, you know, when the different gods had set up their time. And so, so what I'm trying to say to you is that not only is Jesus's coming relevant to you personally as being effective for your salvation, it also has massive cultural implications. In Exodus 12, 3 through 4, it all, we also see the impact that this is going to have on society. Moses is, is uh, speaking here. It's, Yahweh is speaking to Moses, telling him what to speak to Israel. He says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take, them, take, to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. And so God, in the midst of setting time right for his new people, he also is taking care of those who are alone, those who are individuals. People are not created to be in isolation. They're not meant to be living alone. They're not meant to be living without friends. And so in the midst of God establishing a new way for his people, he starts to make a way for them to live together in harmony. So those who are, who are lonely find a home in the midst of God's people, and they are ingrafted into the covenant community 
that is established by his work. In Psalm 68, 6, it says that God sets the solitary or those who are alone in families, and he brings out those who are bound into prosperity. That We see that happen in this story when they take the gold and the silver from the Egyptians, and they, they basically thieve or plunder Egypt as they leave. And so God, in the midst of of this scenario is is giving us a pattern of what's going to happen in the New Testament. But in the New Testament, the New Covenant system has further reaching wider implication and application. Not only is are the single persons put into families, but also entire races are unified and entire divisions between man and woman are unified. In Galatians 3.28, Paul speaking about Christ's work for us, says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is beginning to get way too big for anybody to handle. This is amazing. Ephesians 2 makes it even more clear that this is directly relating to what Jesus has done. Ephesians 2 verse 11 through 15, therefore, this is Paul speaking to the Ephesians, reminding them of something. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's terrifying. That last sentence is horrible. Having no hope and without God in the world. But, Easter Sunday comes along, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace." In the midst of God sending war on Egypt to bring his people out, or in the midst of God exercising his judgments against sin by pouring his wrath onto Jesus in the cross, that is what establishes peace. And this is more more clear when we begin to look at how Christ is not only our peace, but he is specifically, as the New Testament calls, our lamb. In Exodus 12, 5, it says, the, the lamb that they're to choose has some qualifications. They couldn't choose a bull or a dove. It had to be a lamb. Exodus 12, 5 says, Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may, not, or you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. We've seen time and again how John the Baptist is maybe more important than we all realize, and he's less uh, John the Baptist and more John the Prophet. And, uh, and what I mean by that is he baptizes a lot of people, but he does more prophecy than actual baptism in the, in the text. And so time and again, we've seen how little, little tiny sayings that John the Baptist might have, or that John the Baptist said, they might have only seemed at the first few times when we read them as to be single statements that were just poetic in nature or beautiful. And while that is true, John the Baptist is specifically saying that that's that's a true thing, but he's connecting it to something for a reason. It you know John the Baptist could not have said in this sentence, "Behold, here is Jesus, uh, you know the 
the wonderful turtle that holds up the world or, you know, on his back or, you know, the wonderful uh, bull who plows the field. No, he is specifically making a direct connection to a symbol in the Old Covenant that has explicit meaning and was prophesied beforehand. John the Baptist in John 1.29, it says, the next day, John the Baptist, or he in the original text, saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We saw back with Abraham and Isaac how we mentioned that phrase, Yahweh will provide himself uh, a lamb for the offering uh, or will provide himself a sacrifice. And this is the fulfillment. This is building on that idea. Peter agrees with the writer of John the, uh, of John's gospel, that is John, in 1 Peter 1, 17 through 19, he's giving a warning to the, the Christians that he's writing to. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Also, Paul agrees with Peter's doctrine in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, for Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed. Paul doesn't even argue. He just calls him our Passover. And so the blood that Christ shed on the cross for us, it was symbolized by the blood of the Passover lamb that was shed and then spread onto the doorposts of the house. In Exodus 12, 21 through 22, then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and take yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood, which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel. That is the, that's the top part. Like, that, that part right there might be a lintel, maybe over there. It's just the top part of a door. You shall apply it to the lintel and the two doorposts, and none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. In like manner, the blood of Christ must be applied to our hearts by faith, and that happens upon hearing the word of God, hearing the preaching of his word, and responding having the Holy Spirit open your heart, convince you of the truth of it, and in faith responding to what it says for you to do. In Hebrews 10.22, he says, uh, the Hebrew writer describes this reality and says, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That last phrase is talking about baptism. And so it's not in the, in the way that the new covenant community is established, membership into that community is not only responding in faith to God's word, but also following him and obeying him and being baptized. But it's not just responding in faith and being baptized, but there's also a like ordinance or a similar thing to Passover for us, and that is communion. So the question is, let us draw near to what? Let us draw near with faith to some mystical experience that we have during our devotional time? No. It does mean to draw near to the throne of God, but it also means to draw near to the table at communion. 
And this is where we're going to end with a reading. And since I don't see the particular reading, I'll just go ahead and take... Do you want to do it, Victor? Okay. Okay, it's Victor's turn to do the reading. So before, he, as he comes up, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wonderfully established plan of redemption, the unfolding of which is too large for any of us to comprehend. God, we ask you that we would see your glory displayed in time and space throughout the scriptures in real historical events that have real significant and prophetic meaning and application. And God, we ask you that you would pour out your spirit upon us, that we would be able to respond in faith at the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.